Hello, how are you? I hope you're having a wonderful day. Um, I'm actually on vacation right now, so catch me outside if you want to, but I am in the beautiful southeast portion of the United States, and uh, it is lovely, fabulous. Visiting friends, seeing so many lovely faces that I haven't seen in years, having a great time. But uh, today's episode, we are talking about growing in greenhouses, and uh, <clears throat> this is something that we, we really do a lot on the farm, and uh, greenhouses and structures was a large part of my infrastructure plan that I put um, a great deal of emphasis on when I was building our farm because I knew that um, in order for me to justify uh, building a, a labor team and being able to keep that crew and that team employed for the majority of the year, I was going to have to have different growing zones rather than just what we were capable of producing in a field growing situation. So um, before we dive into today's episode, I just want to say thank you for being here. One, two, welcome. Uh, if you're new here, uh, this is the Between Me and Drew podcast. My name is Drew and my flower farm is Clara Joyce Flowers and we're located in Stockton, Illinois um, at the base of the uh, Driftless region, which is a fabulous place. absolutely love it. Grew up here um, and uh, wouldn't change it for the world. So, um, And if you're not new here, I want to say that I really appreciate you. You know, This uh, podcast adventure is something that is totally new and for me, and I'm very, very excited. Um, very glad that I've been able to share my knowledge and my experience and uh, my my hope and my goal is that you're able to take what I, I share and learn from it or implement it or uh, better yourself off of my experiences or from my experiences. Um, that's my goal here, you know. Um, yeah, that's that. So, without any further ado, let's dive into and get this uh, show on the road about growing cut flowers in greenhouses. All right, so um, we're going to kind of break this down um, a few different ways. And, and I want to preface our conversation for today um, by saying that in episode 24, we're going to talk about uh, cold cropping is what, what I've come to call it. Um, and, uh, when we're talking about like the seasonality and like the season rotate, rotate, ro good night. When we're talking about the seasonality and the seasons, the season rotation, goodness gracious. Um, a lot of the, the things that we'll focus on for fall, winter, and early spring will be covered in a lot more detail in episode 24. So, um. I know that it seems like it's a long ways away, but episode 24 will be solely dedicated to cold cropping, uh, which is basically growing in unheated structures. Um, so we'll, we'll dive a lot more into that. But I do want to start today off um, with talking about the different types of structures that there are and that you will see when you are 
starting to look at greenhouses or you're becoming interested in, in greenhouse uh, growing in general. Um, but from a structural perspective, the best thing that I can say is to make your decision based on where you live. Um, if you are looking at a catalog, whether it's Nolts or FarmTech or BFG or wherever, um, Rimmel, there's there's lots of different places that you can bu- build a greenhouse or a high tunnel or a hoop house from, or you can get a kit from, I should say. There are t- there should be two big things that stick out to you: um, the actual shape of the profile of that building. So, one option is a gothic style hoop, which means that there's basically a peak to the roof. So that's option one. Option two is a Quonset style, and that is where it's just like a half circle. There is no actual peak. It's just a big metal hoop that's basically, it looks like it's a hula hoop cut in half, and that's the the profile. Um, If you were to look at the the end of the building, what that structure looks like. If you live in a part of the world where snow really is not an issue for you ever, then I would strongly encourage that you use a Quonset style. And the reason why you would do that is because if you can tell me that you never get snow, then you don't need to worry about snow load or snow shed. But if you do live in a part of the world where you do get snow, and yes, it does snow in South Carolina and North Carolina, then you probably shouldn't be using a Quonset-style house. Um, And uh, the reason that is is because Gothic-style, which is the the style that we use the most at the farm, um, those are designed to shed snow on their own. And uh, that is a very wonderful thing. <laughs> to, to know and to grasp and understand before you make the decision of what you're going to buy. Um, because I've seen time and time again where... Uh, Someone will purchase a Quonset-style house, and uh, it'll snow, and the house will collapse if it's not built strong enough and it doesn't have an inflated roof and all of those things. Um, So before you buy anything, I want you to know that those two structures or the shapes of structures are very different they are very important for you to understand um and if you get snow please 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 get the gothic style structure you you will not regret it i promise so once you have that decision made as to what uh style of house you're going to be using there are a few other things to keep in mind or to like ask yourself from the get-go you know one do you ever plan on heating this this structure this building okay if you do plan on heating it then you um really really should be using um a kit that has uh, or a greenhouse kit that has two layers of plastic for the roof and an, an inflation fan and that inflation fan is what what it's going to do is it will fill that 
gap between the two layers of plastic with a big bubble of air. And that air is going to serve as insulation for you. Um, for the summer, yes, and you're also going to get more light deprivation because of the two layers of plastic. Uh, but in the wintertime, that, that bubble is a huge, huge deal. That is basically going to um, double up on the greenhouse effect that is happening on the inside of that structure. So you're going to heat. You're going to be able to build more heat during the day, and also be able to maintain and retain that um, heat buffer that's been built into the nighttime temperatures, uh, which is a huge, huge deal. And uh, that's really something that we rely on heavily um, here at the farm is uh, that buffer of time, basically f during the nighttime temperature, nighttime period, uh, when we're still relying on that uh, heat that was has been built up during the day before we need to uh, kick on the heaters, uh, which is awesome. Saves us so much time and money, uh, more so money than time, but you get the point. Um, if you're not planning on heating your structure, then you can totally get by with uh, just one layer of plastic. Um, if you're in an area where there is no snow, you can also get by with using um, a house that is uh, relatively wider than you would be able to do if you were um, planning on snow. So the widest house we have is a 34 foot wide, um, and it's 34 by 96 feet, and it's actually the main footprint of all of our uh, growing houses, our big growing houses that are all heated. Whereas if you are not having to account for uh, slope of your roof with or for uh, snow shed and shedding snow, um, then you can go wider. You know, I've seen kits for 50 and 60 feet foot wide houses, and that's a very, very wide house. It's a very big piece of plastic that you'll need. Um, but the one drawback with the wider that you go, the shallower of a slope that your roof line will be. So um, there will be a harder time of, of snow shed when situations like that arise. So that's one other thing to um, consider as well. Um, besides that, you really have uh, one last uh, question that you, you have to answer when it comes to the actual structure um, from, from a, a big view perspective. You know, there's lots and lots of things to, to think about and hash over when it comes to the specifics of a, a building. Like, am I going to build the end walls or am I going to buy a kit? What is the end wall material going to be? Am I going to use a stretched... Uh, poly sheet or am I going to use the double wall polycarbonate panel you know all of those little things are questions that you can answer on your own based on your location etc um, but the last one from my perspective is you know are you going to heat this number one number two how are you going to heat it okay do you have access to natural gas and can you get a natural gas line ran to your greenhouse if you do Kudos to you, okay? If you don't, then you've got several more options, okay? Uh, number one is are you or do you want to burn wood to heat like a boiler system to heat this greenhouse, 
Um, I've seen a lot of people use wood or burning some sort of natural organic material to build heat and to, to heat their greenhouses. I've seen large commercial greenhouses use lumber scrap uh, from construction sites. I've seen people uh, build big burners uh, that can handle like uh, uh, corn stalk bales that they'll just like put a, wh- a whole entire big round bale into this burner and it'll heat their greenhouse. Uh, you can burn like split wood. You can like put whole trees into things, you know. There's lots and lots of options when it comes to combustibles for heat um, as far as organic materials. Um, but you have another option as well, um, which is what we do, very expensive, um, but that is propane. Um, and we rely on propane for our heat because we don't have access to natural gas. Um, I grew up spending a few days every summer helping my dad split wood, and I absolutely refuse to spend time and money and labor money on doing something that we're just going to burn later. Um, so burning wood is just not, not for me. Um, and with burning woods, you, you, it's a lot of labor during the winter as well. So don't kid yourself there. Um, and, uh, we have the infrastructure to be able to store large amounts of propane, um, here on the farm, right at the greenhouse site. Um, and, uh, overall the, propane process is relatively straightforward. Um, Your service company will bring you a tank. You'll have someone come out and install the lines and the regulators and all of that stuff. Um, My my other experience with propane is that there are times when things go wrong. Um, There will be times when you are installing something and uh, you get a leak. And then all of a sudden you've wasted, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of propane. Um, you know, stuff like that happens. But once it happens and it's fixed, then it, it doesn't happen again. Um, and we really only see things like that happen when we take on new projects or new additions to that process um, or that program. Um, so th- that is honestly just part of the growing pain that you have to go through and work through and you'll, you will get through. Um, other ways to heat greenhouses, there are lots of them, okay? Um, you could talk about solar banking with water. You know, I've seen people um, take 55-gallon drums that are plastic, um, paint them black, fill them with water, and put them on the south side of the greenhouse so that during the day, those black barrels heat up, and then they're releasing um, their heat over the nighttime temperature. It's a great passive heat process. Love it. Um, I've seen people heat greenhouses with geothermal. So underneath their greenhouse, before they build it, they'll dig big ditches, like five or six feet deep into the soil, and um, they'll put a whole series of uh, field tile with no holes in the field tile, um, and then they'll bury that. Uh, so that the at one end of the greenhouse, there's a pipe that comes up out of the ground, and then there's you know hundreds of feet worth of field tile under the soil, and at the other end of the greenhouse, there is another hose that comes up, and you have a fan that will be blowing air from one end of that hose all the way through that network of piping underneath the ground, and it'll blow that you know 55 degree air from the beneath the earth's surface. 
um, into your greenhouse. And then from there, that air can then be cycled through the house via fans. Um, I think that is a great option for people if you have a very deep soil profile um, and you're on a flat piece of ground. Um, I have neither of those things here. So uh, that was kind of out of the question for us. There are... Um, I've actually seen people do solar panels and heat with electric. I don't think that is a very cost-effective manner. But, I mean, if you are in a place that's always sunny, then it might it might honestly be an option for you. But historically, heating anything with electric can and is very expensive. Um, so if you didn't have sun, then you would be using a lot of electricity to do that. Um, so there are lots and lots of options when it comes to, to heating structures. So there is no one answer. You have to do it this way or the other. Um, so keep that in mind as well. But I do think that from an overall perspective or overall view, there is a lot of benefit in having supplemental heat in a growing house, um, at your availability. And, uh, one thing that has taken me a few years to learn is that just because you have a heated house does not mean that you have to heat it all year long or all winter long. Uh, we actually don't heat our main growing houses until like the end of February, first part of March, and then we'll turn them on. And they're all planted already. So um, all of our spring crops for inside heated greenhouses are already planted. They're already growing. They're just growing a lot slower right now because it is winter and they're not heated. Um, so crops like snapdragons, ranunculus, anemone, um, bupleurum, cress, stock, poppies, um, all of those cold uh, or cool crops, as LMZ has uh, called them, which is fabulous, um, I think those uh, crops work very, very well for the type of process that we're growing in. Um, and, uh, that process is, uh, what we use for our spring crops, quote unquote. So all of our spring crops, like I said, have been planted. Um, ideally we would get those crops in the ground beginning of November. Um, realistically, we didn't get them in until December this year. Um, and, uh, it's now January. They're slowly growing the ranunculus are fabulous because it's been so warm um but uh once we get into like i like i mentioned the end of february first part of march um then we'll really want to start pushing those crops along and uh, we will turn the heaters on just so that they basically aren't freezing at any point during the day because now they um have no supplemental heat those houses do have the inflated roof, so there is additional heat being built during the day, and it has a larger uh, retention capacity for overnight. Um, but there, it is very, very common for the foliage of those plants to freeze during the nighttime. So it's just taking those plants longer the next morning to basically wake up, thaw off, and get those uh, those processes happening inside that plant again. Um, so when we are needing to push those plants along to be able to ensure Mother's Day flowers, all we're doing is we're keeping that nighttime temperature between 35 and 40, um, which r really honestly, when we're talking about heating a, a house, um, can be very minimal. Uh, 
However, and I say however, because there are times here in the, the lovely Midwest when we get polar vortexes. And a polar vortex is a treat, I will tell you. Um, and uh, it's very common for polar vortex to be negative 20 before the wind chill. Um, so when you have negative 20 air temperature outside of the house and you're trying to heat that to 35 on those nights, that's like a 55 degree differential. Um, so you will be burning a lot of fuel in order to maintain that. However, also keep in mind that polar vortexes are not an everyday situation and some years they don't happen. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Some years cost more than others to heat. Um, currently, the 2021 winter into 2022, we've been very, very, very lucky um, as far as, you know, what we've had to, to heat to, to maintain. We've had, like I mentioned, a very unseasonally warm year, and uh, I don't have a lot of complaints. But you know what? We'll see what the rest of January and February bring. So I can't uh, speak too soon. Um, but... When we're talking about crop planning and forecasting, one of the biggest things that I can say with growing in structures is you really want to be good at your timing because when a crop is declining in either productivity or quality or you're not able to sell it or whatever the case is, you always want to have something ready to go in its place. Once you've ripped that crop out, removed that crop, amended the bed, etc. Um, and the reason that is is because growing in a greenhouse is a very expensive uh, place to grow. Um, there's a lot of costs that go into actually being able to plant something inside a greenhouse. Um, you have your obvious... Um, expenses you know you have your building and you have the plastic and you have the electric and you have the heat and you have the end walls and you have you know all of those physical costs uh, but you also have to take into account that um, when you are building a greenhouse structure um, it's a structure and oftentimes you will be taxed for that um, I know in Illinois where we live and farm, taxes are um, something that a lot of people have a problem with because there are a lot of them and they are very high. Um, so all of that cost has to be made up. So in order for your greenhouses to be as profitable as they can be and to make the most return as possible, um, you have to have your planning nailed down. Um, and if you don't have your planning nailed down, then I would really, really suggest or encourage that you do as much experimenting as you can in the first few years to figure out what processes are the most efficient and the most effective for you and your specific scenario. Because what growers are doing in Alberta, Canada, uh, probably isn't going to be the same as what you're going to be doing in Florida. Um, so there is that as well. But, uh, the reason I bring that up is because once we see our 
early spring crops decline, we really needed to have our summer crops seeded in plugs at that point. Um, so if we're uh, putting like uh, a fancy early chrysanthemum, uh, like a veg vegmo in a greenhouse, or our lisianthus or whatever, um, those those plugs they need to be ready um, for when we are basically. Um, so that oftentimes will mean us ripping out a snap of uh, a bed of snapdragons, even though we might have been able to get you know ten more bunches off of that bed or whatever the case may be. There will be times when you have to sacrifice you know a hundred dollars here in order to make three thousand dollars there so you got to be able to make those calls and uh to you know move on once you've made that decision um when we're talking about uh kind of timelines since we're uh in the notion or in the thought process of of timing um our overall general goal is to always have the next step of the way prepared before we actually take that step. So our spring flowers that we'll be harvesting for Mother's Day at and around that time, those are planted in the fall of the previous year so that they've got all winter to grow, they're ready to go in the spring. And then that crop list would include uh, things like I mentioned earlier, ranunculus, anemone, snapdragons, poppies, stock, amobium, cress, bupleurum, bells of Ireland, nigella, um, larkspur, so many wonderful spring flowers, um, that need that, that really cool growing period. And that's really what makes them incredible. Um, so all of that is, is done ahead of time. Once those crops are going down, whether it was a direct seeded crop or a plugged crop, or if it's a root crop where we're saving the ranunculus roots, um, once the, that's done, then we're transitioning into summer. And summer greenhouses looks like uh, Dusty Miller, um, Lisianthus, rotations of snapdragons. Um, I mentioned earlier the Vegmo mums. Those do fantastic undercover. Um, more eucalyptus, rosemary, um, things that are summer annuals, but they either are growing too slow in the field or they're too short in the field, things like that. So if you've historically grown lisianthus in an outdoor environment and they are either a little too short or they get damaged from the rain or, you know, whatever your individual case may be, um, that is when I would then move that crop for the future into a structure. Um, Lizianthus is a great example. Um, we actually cut Lizzie out of the production plan in 2021 because I was so frustrated with it, but it's m making a huge comeback <laughs> in 2022. Um, but with Lizianthus, it's very, very hard to get um, a beautiful crop sometimes when you're growing it in a field environment. Um, the plants themselves really, like a singular lisianthus plant, does not have a lot of um, body to it to help hold itself up. So you have to have some sort of a plant support there for it. Um, that 
plant support in a field setting is not something that I like to deal with because in the field, it's very easy for weeds to get out of control. And then at the end of the season, you have to go wrangle those cages or that netting out of weeds. And that's a mess. Um, number two with Lysianthus in particular, it is very, very easy for the petals and the blooms to be damaged from rain. And, uh, you can't stop it from raining ever. Okay. So what we do is we plant those places, plant those plants in an area that the rain isn't going to actually hit the petals. And that would be a covered structure like a greenhouse. Um, so because of that, then you've got tall, beautiful stems because of the double layer of light deprivation from the plastic on the roof. Um, you've got reduced wind, which is then going to make those plant stems a lot more slender and more graceful. Um, you're also able to plant those plants a lot closer too. Um, and that's also going to, to force or in quote unquote, encourage those stems to get um, a lot taller if you're going for stem count. If you don't go by stem count, let's say you go by uh, weight or uh, by volume of flower, then you are going to want to plant those plants a little bit farther apart. Um, and you're going to want those Lysianthus blooms to actually fully open. And so there's multiple heads open on those stems before you harvest it. Um, because if you have one very skinny stem with one flower open, it's going to take more of those stems to fill out a bunch rather than having um, one stem with like five or six open heads on it. So little things like that are little little tips and tricks of the trade. Um, as far as plant supports with Lysianthus, you know, you've got several options. You can use the, uh, the white plastic Hortnova um, that is very common. You can also use what we use, which are metal cages that we've made out of um, concrete reinforcement wire. So what we do is we have our local lumberyard delivered to the farms. We don't have to haul it any more than we have to. Um, but they're like, th I think they're th either 100 or 300. They may be 300 foot rolls um, that are, I think, four feet wide. And uh, our beds are, are set up for three feet wide. So what we will do is we'll then uh, unroll this roll, cut it into 12 foot sections, uh, so that it's easier to handle with one or two people. And then we'll uh, shape it and bend the, the sides in uh, to basically make uh, a cage that straddles the bed. And our plants will grow up through that metal. Um, since it is metal, it can be reused year after year after year. Um, it is very sturdy, very secure, um, and it, it honestly does a great job. And I love them for growing in a greenhouse. Um, and it's a one-time investment as well, which is much more appealing rather than the Hortnova that you can maybe get one or two, sometimes three years out of. Um, but oftentimes you just use it for one year and then you, you throw it away. Um, so that is one way for us to be just a, a little bit more sustainable in my eyes in the long run. Um, once our summer crops are starting to phase out, then we are busily preparing for um, sometimes a, a fall flush. Um, so let's say the first things to go down in the spring were 
larkspur, and the nigella, which is very common. So once those are done, those beds would be removed, uh, cleaned up, amended, um, and then we would go ahead and plant a late planting of um, dahlias in that place. So dahlias will take at least a solid 90 days to uh, get to a point where they can produce flowers uh, on a on a production basis. They, they'll, they'll throw a few stems earlier than that, but uh, in order for a plant to be fully flushing, it's a solid 90 days, maybe more, honestly, uh, depending on the variety. So what we will do is once we have those um, spring beds emptied, we'll go ahead and plant those dahlias that we know that we're going to need for the fall. And we know that we're not going to be able to harvest those for quite a while. Um, and that's okay. That's totally fine. Because um, based on our timing, we know that we just we have to get those dahlias in the ground like no later than June or July. Um, and if we can secure that, then we'll be good for the fall. And it's the same thing for the fancy mums that have to be in greenhouses too. Uh, you know, as long as those are in the ground by June, you're good to go. Um, we've, we've pushed it to be later than that. It's doable. They're not the best, but, um, little timing tricks and quirks like that. You'll, uh, you'll, you will learn on your own as you go. Um, if we are not ready, so which does happen, uh, if we don't have a crop ready to go to fill a bed or to fill a portion of a greenhouse, um, it is definitely an option to put a cover crop down. Um, buckwheat is a great uh, cover crop. It's quick growing, um, and uh, it will just help you get more organic matter into your soil, uh, which is always something that we're trying to do regardless of whether it's the field or if it's in a greenhouse setting. So organic matter is wonderful. Um, once you finish out the fall season, um, which I do have another little trick. Um, one thing that we use a lot for fall bouquets and event work is the blooming kale or cabbages. Um, so if you are um, finishing up a summer flush of lisianthus and you're like, oh, wow, I could sell you know, a thousand stems of white kale or whatever, um, you still have time to do that at that point in the season because your lisianthus, it's going to be tight. That might be a little short. Your kale will be, but you still have time. Um, once your summer flush is done, get those ripped out, get that kale, those kale transplants in, um, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be pushing it for Thanksgiving. But the nice thing with kale and the flowering cabbages and things like that is they can go through several, several frosts, like heavy, heavy frosts, and they'll be totally fine. Um, honestly, I think the those brassicas look better after they've gone through several frosts because the colors just become more prominent. They're much more beautiful. Um, so that is a lovely option as well. But um, from there, what we will do for timeline is we're preparing for spring um, because we are um, getting our Snapdragon plugs started. We are, you know, soaking our ranunculus roots, um, getting those uh, growing and cracking in their crates, um, all of those things. So um, there really never is like a downtime. It's just 
one thing to the next to the next to the next. And the first few years that you do this will be very overwhelming. Um, been there, done that multiple times. Um, but it, it really does become kind of this natural process because you can see the plants declining. So you know that like, okay, once we see that, it's, it's ready to, we need to, we need to think about what's next. The succession plan. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. Um, there are a few things to discuss about growing in greenhouses. Um, and one of the biggest issues with growing in a structure is that we have had experience with a lot of experience, um, is that of insects and, uh, Insects in greenhouses and greenhouse settings can be insane. Um, I would say generally across the board, there are very uh, few crops that have major, major issues with insects, you know, outside of the normal of aphids um, and, and small bodied insects like that. But there's always a but. Dahlias in specific or specifically um, have predominantly been an issue when we've tried to get them going early. And I know I'm not the only person who feels this way too. Early dahlias in a greenhouse can be, and even in a field, can be very, very challenging. Um, and uh, with us, the biggest insect to point our fingers at is the European hemp borer. Um, that little sucker is my worst nightmare, basically. It happens every year with the early dahlias. And uh, you'd think we learn our lesson to not try and grow early dahlias because they're never actually early. Um, but, you know, we do it anyway. But the thing with the hemp borer is that they will bore into the stem about halfway up the plant. And, like, this is happening, like, as the first flush of blooms are starting to be produced so like it's it's going to be like beautiful and fabulous and all these wonderful things and we're going to make so much money off of these flowers etc yada 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 okay so these little bastards they'll bore a hole into the side of the stem and instead of going up to just like eat the flower they go down the center of the stem and what they'll do is they eat the inside of the stem all the way down to the crown and then they eat the entire crown out of the dahlia. So, like, the whole plant is just, like, dead. And there's, like, nothing there structurally on the inside of the plant because this damn bug is eating the whole thing. Um, so what that basically does is that, that if we catch it in time, if it doesn't kill the plant, it sets that plant back to basically be in line with our field production dahlias. So at that point, you know, I'm not getting extra production from dahlias in, in the summer, early summer, when these should be blooming. So I've lost that production. I spent $600 on insecticide, and the insecticide we use for that is called Mainspring. It's very, very effective. It's injected through the irrigation system. So we don't have to spray anything. It's a systemic, so the plant absorbs it. And then any time uh, a chewing insect eats that tissue, um, then that insecticide is injected. So like bees that are not eating 
the tissue, um, hypothetically, aren't being killed. Have I seen a bee die from it? No. Have I not seen a bee die from it? No, I don't. I haven't, okay? The, the reason we went, went that avenue is so that it wasn't being sprayed, so that we weren't hitting of those pollinators. Um, so that's the thought process there. Um, otherwise, for um, insects and pests with, with greenhouses, I mean, sky's the limit. Um, when we're talking winter growing, uh, mice and voles can be a big issue on anemones. Um, rabbits, if they're not hibernated, those can be an issue over the winter. So there definitely are problem children to, to keep an eye out for. Um, but insects, um, we are very, very fortunate here to not have, believe it or not, threat pressure. Knock on wood. I, I, every time, every time I say that I have to knock on wood, um, but thrips can be devastating, and you won't really notice thrip damage until a flower is mature, um, until it opens, because the thrips are going into the closed buds and doing their damage, and they're feeding then. Um, so once you see it, once you see them, it, it's 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 too late at that point. Um, so if it's a branching crop that they're targeting, do what you can to to manage and control that population. Um, and you'll get some later flushes off of those plants. If it's a single stem crop like sunflowers, just trash it and start over um, and use it as a learning example. <laughs> um, that's the, the best thing you could do in that situation. Um, one other thing to note about growing in structures too is that of nutrition. Um, nutrition and water. I think those those two things play very much hand in hand. Um and the reason that is is because when you're growing in a greenhouse, one, it is a very intense growing environment. So those plants are going to use a lot more water rather than if they are in the field. Um, and because of the light deprivation that's happening from the plastic, they're going to get a lot taller a lot quicker. So they're going to be using more nutrition as they're rapidly growing. Um, so you really need to, to stay up on you know, amending your beds as you go, whether you're using a con uh, synthetic conventional fertilizer or whether you're using organics and naturals. Um, you know, you always want to be going in with nitrogen in the first part of the season and then trying to um, help those plants along with phosphorus and potassium at the second part of the growing production process. Um, so there is a an episode that we talk about all of that uh, plant pathology and health episode seven if you want to jump back and listen to that one you are more than welcome to um so yes nutrition is very important to to, to stay up on um we do all of our feeding during the main season uh through injection through our irrigation um and we can customize that based on the house um the greenhouse that we're growing in so we have um, four big uh, 34 by 96 foot growing houses. We have our propagation house. And then we have three caterpillar tunnels from Farmer's Friend. Um, and all of those structures can be uh, fertilized individually um, with their own injection system. So if we've got you know, dahlias in one house that are blooming, you know, they're going to get a different fertilizer than, you know, a, a house of ranunculus that are just getting started. 
the ranunculus are going to get more nitrogen. The dahlias are not going to get that nitrogen. Um, so you're just using a different blend, basically, at that point. Um, love that. Okay, great. One other thing to keep in mind with growing in a structure um, is spacing. And uh, I think there there are several ways to, to look at plant spacing, uh, regardless of whether it's in the field or in a greenhouse uh, structure. Um, the first thought process is, you know, if you give a branching plant more space, it will branch out farther, it will have more room to breathe, and in turn, you're going to get more stems, okay? And we see that a lot with dahlias. We really do. So that's that's thought process number one. Number two, um, instead of forcing those plants to support themselves, pack more plants in a smaller space and give them some sort of support. And in return, you will get a larger number of stems per foot because you're planting more plants per square foot. You will get taller stems because those stems are competing for light and space. And you're going to get uh, straighter stems too because you are you you have more of a role, an active role in that plant's growing process. Okay. There are no wrong answers whether you plant things very far apart or whether you have them super close together. However, again, <laughs> again with the howevers, um, there are lots of things to keep in mind. And and this decision that you will make on plant spacing can be very crop specific. And, you know, and what are your intentions with this crop? So when we plant dahlias, uh, we plant them very, very close together, like maybe eight inches max. Um, and the reason that is, is because we are growing them for flowers, yes, but we're also growing them for tubers. And the more tubers that we can harvest per square foot makes that crop more profitable. Um, and uh, dahlias and chrysanthemums are really the only two major crops that we grow under plastic or in a structure that are branching. Um uh, that, that take up a lot of space, you know, second flush lisianthus that can quote unquote be considered a branch type plant. But again, different crop, different intentions. Do you get the point? But overall, the vast majority of the things that we're producing in houses are not going to be there for a, a super long period of time. So we need those plants to have long, beautiful straight stems because we can um, have more of an impact with longer stems rather than shorter stems. Um, we need to be able to harvest a large quantity of beautiful product off of these beds in these greenhouses. Um, and we need to have very good quality off of these plants too because growing in a structure like we broke down earlier is very expensive. So in order for us to make that cost back, we have to make sure that we're doing everything we can to to really make that money, honey. So when we're talking spacing, um, our average for greenhouse spacing is five to six inches between plants. Um, 
and that goes for um, things like uh, stock and snapdragons, things like that, anemones as well, uh, ranunculus, the same thing. Uh, but when we get into things like dianthus that are going to bush out a little bit more, even though they have like one really good flush, those will be on like a nine inch spacing poppies, the big fancy hummingbird and Icelandic poppies or not Icelandic, um, the Italian poppies, those can get quite large on their plants. So they get more spacing. Um, foxglove uh, under plastic that those plants, their second year will get quite large as well. Um, so more space for them as well. But um, things like violas and pansies, those are on like a three to a four inch spacing. So um, very, very close. Um, so all of those individual crops have their own little quirks as far as, you know, how many plants we can fit in. What are our intentions? Are we shooting for just stems or are we digging the roots out as well? Um, all of those things really play a, play a role. Um, one thing to keep in mind is the closer you have plants planted together, um, that is going to decrease the amount of natural airflow that will be happening in that growing zone because it's just more vegetation and more stems that that wind and that air is going to have to move through. Um, and in turn, if you have things very, very tight and you've got very minimal airflow, that is prime breeding ground for um, bacterial ape breakouts, uh, fungal breakouts, uh, things like that. Um, so that would be something like a powdery mildew or a downy mildew or botrytis. Um, all of those things um, really can be not necessarily resolved, but uh, prevented with adequate airflow. So if you are planting very, very close together, like we do here, um, once those plants start to have a very strong canopy that you can't really see through and you don't feel a lot of air moving, air movement happening underneath of that canopy, you gotta really think about getting some ventilation fans or air circulation fans or something. Um, to make sure that there isn't a lot of water or dew sitting on those leaves for the entire period of the day or the entire time of the day. Um, when there is dew, if there is dew that settles or if there's dripping happening from the roof of the greenhouse, um, you want that to dry as quickly as possible um, because any uh, additional moisture being held in uh, the canopy or in that, that growing zone is not ideal. It's not what you want. Um, so you want to keep that in mind as well. Um, we, we've already touched on supporting plants. So um, we talked about that when we were specifically talking about Lysianthus, but we can do a quick recap here. Um, plant supports can be whatever you want it to be. Okay, If you want to be super fancy, you can get real ornate uh, metal supports. You can weave supports out of willows. You can, you know... Sky's, sky's the limit when it comes to supports. But from a commercial perspective, um, there are, are a few options. The most readily available and most widely used option is uh, a product called Hortnova. And it's a, a white um, plastic mesh, basically. Um, and the mesh has a 4-inch by 4-inch hole. Maybe it's 6 by 6. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm just looking at my hand on spacing, and I think it is a 6-inch spacing. Um 
and I could be wrong though. Don't quote me on that one. Um, so what you will do with that is you've got stakes uh, periodically spaced on your bed, um, and those stakes will be used as tensioners to hold your hort nova um, on a level plane um, so that your plants will be able to grow through that. That's option number one. Option number two um, would be a metal cage, which is what we use. Um, so we uh, have um, concrete reinforcement wire that's on rolls delivered to the farm. We cut it at 12 foot in length, and then we'll bend the sides of that in to make a cage that will straddle the bed um, so that our plants are growing through that. It's a reusable material. Um, it can be put outside over the winter, so we're not having to store it inside of a building. Um, and it, it can, really, it's a, it's a one-time investment because even if it gets bent under a snowbank or a whatever, you can bend it right back the way it needs to be. So those are fantastic. Um, another option that I am seeing a little bit more on a commercial basis is a, uh, wire or a metal version of Hortnova. Um, it's a thin, thinner wire, so it's more malleable. Um, but those are, or that product is not something that I've seen readily available. Um, from what, I've heard through the industry, uh, it's something that is very, very common in uh, Holland and in Dutch growers, and I've seen it in greenhouses um, in videos there, so I know it's available there, um, just hasn't quite made it to the U.S. for production yet. So we're patiently waiting for her to make her entrance when she feels like it. So um, with that, I think that covers the, the vast majority of... Um, things to to keep an eye on when we are actually growing in a greenhouse um there are there are lots of of quirks when it comes to harvesting um those are more so solely dependent on the type of crop that you're growing not necessarily the environment that you're growing in um but i think we've we've really covered our our bases today for growing in greenhouses um if you are looking for more of a of a handheld uh, experience on educating yourself on growing in greenhouses. Um, Stephen Gretel from Spring Meadows or Sunny Meadows um, in Ohio, they have a online workshop course that they are offering that they do offer um, through the Gardener's Workshop. Um, Stephen Gretel are and their crew are fantastic greenhouse growers. Um, I've toured their farm many times. They do a fantastic job at what they do. Um, so definitely check that out if you're in the market for that. So as always, um, my intentions for, for this podcast and this episode are, are just to be able to share my experiences in, in a hope or in hopes that you'll be able to use this information, um, in some way, shape or form, or if nothing else, just to to build up on your knowledge bank of what it takes to grow in a greenhouse. Um, so I'm not trying to tell you one way or another that you should do it this way or that way, but uh, this is uh, what we've done, what we what we know works, and uh, just a little bit more of an insight on how our farm operates. So there's that. Again, um, thank you 
for being here. Uh, please do follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under Clara Joyce Flowers. If you have questions about things we talked about today um, or ideas for new topics, we're always looking to add to our list. Uh, you can send me an email at drew at clarajoyceflowers.com. On our website, we've got merchandise, plants, tubers, etc. Um, that will all be pre-ordered and they'll be shipped in the spring. Um, and those are available on clarajoyceflowers.com. We are currently uh, dividing dahlias back at the farm, and the quality is looking fabulous this year, so I'm very, very excited. Um, and depending on your streaming platform, please feel free to like, comment, and subscribe to this podcast, and drop us a rating as well. We really appreciate it. Um, and since we are talking about planning and forecasting, we are... Um, busily filling up our schedule for 22 23 and the 2024 seasons so if you have any conferences that you're planning on attending that you would like us to speak at um, or if you've got a uh, garden club or anywhere else that you'd like to uh, have me come and be a uh, speaker at please feel free to let me know you can send me an email for that as well and we'll talk about rates and transportation and all of that fun jazz I hope you have a great rest of your day. I am uh, still recovering uh, from this uh, cold that I've had for a while. I feel like it's just stuck in my throat at this point, and probably talking for hours on end isn't helping anything, but, you know, it is what it is. That's the cost of your passion. It's my fashion, so fashion is pain. Anyway, um, I've got things to do. I've got people to talk to, and uh, I am going to chat with you later, so. Have a good day. Happy growing. And uh, I will see you next week when we are talking about perennials and how to make those investments work for you. Okay. Bye. Bye.